Hello and welcome to Starbites, the astronomy podcast for people interested in the cosmos. Welcome back. We are back finally from our very extended um, winter break. Back at it again to record new episodes. Um, and I think we should just first introduce ourselves. My name is Doug. I'm Ben. I'm Jessica. And I'm Yasmin. Yeah, and today we're going to do a very special thing. So we've been actually talking about doing um, an episode like the one we're going to do today for a really long time. And what it is, is we are going to record a three-part special on Einstein's theory of relativity, which is very exciting. Now, this is the first episode of this series. Um, we're going to release it normal time. So the first episode will go this week and then the next episode will go next week and the week after that. So normal, you don't have to like watch a gigantic episode and just die from watching a two huge episode. And the way this is going to work is we're going to divide it sort of chronologically. So the first episode, which is the episode we're going to record today, is about um, relativity before Einstein. So we're going to talk about how this concept of like relativistic thinking sort of came into being in the minds of scientists and became very ingrained in how we think about motion and just how important that idea is to just everything in classical physics. And we're also going to talk about a little bit about people starting to try to understand light, but kind of not really getting anywhere. Um, the second episode, which will air next week, will be about um, sort of continuing Einstein's life and also the theory of special relativity. And then the last episode will be about general relativity and all of that cool stuff. I don't know about you guys, but I am very excited to talk about this. I am hyped. This is so much fun. Yeah, we, we came up with this like a few months ago, and I've just been very excited to talk about it. So this is, this is good. Um, I also want to say that um, because this episode is all about the stuff before Einstein, this topic is too big for one episode. Like the amount of things that inspired um, Einstein to create his theory is just too many things. Like we could we could go on on massive tangents that are important, but they are tangents. So we're gonna try to make this episode focused on what we want to talk about specifically. And we thought that the best way to do this is just to focus on two major like things and concepts that are important. And this is just the development of relativistic thought and also just ideas about motion and light. Right, guys? Right. right. Yep. Yeah. So to start things off, I think it's a better way to just go way back in the past, all the way back to the 14th century, um, right in the mirror, middle of Europe. We're talking Germany here and France and those places. Um, and just a little background before we delve into it. Um, before this time, the universe was very much understood as a static thing. Everything was just quiet and didn't move that much. And the universe was just like a painting. And that's how it was. Um, it was very much inspired by Aristotle's um, physics, which is a book where Aristotle explains his whole idea of what cosmology is like. So if you think about like the spheres that's and the geocentric model, that's what the universe was back then. And the idea is, is that everything is absolute. There's no relativity at all. The earth is in the middle. There was this idea of like a middle, a definite middle to the universe that we now don't really think anymore because now we understand that 
because of relativity and because of like everything that I see is just based on what I where I am uh, the idea of a center doesn't really make sense because anywhere can be the center but they didn't think that um and I think this is a really good point to actually define like what we mean when we say relativity so a lot of people think about relativity and like associated with Einstein but I think relativity as a broader concept is good to introduce here because it's so much in contrast with what Aristotle thought so Doug like you said Aristotle said that there are absolute ups, absolute downs, absolute centers, whereas I think relativity and what we're trying to explain here is that um, relativity states that these terms well, are all relative, but there is no absolute um, in the universe or even on, on Earth. And I think that's a more abstract concept that one, than what most people usually think of when they think of relativity because they think of like gravity and Einstein and stuff. And I think it also... You know, you might be intimidated by the term, thinking that it has to mean something like kind of scientific, but in like the very most basic sense, you can just think of relativity as the idea that things are like different from different perspectives. And that's the kind of thing like if someone like writes the number six and someone looks at that number upside down, they would say it's the number nine. So, you know, that that number or the the symbol as it's written kind of has definitions that are relative because from one perspective it's a six and from one perspective it's a nine so there's no absolute truth to what that symbol means yeah when i was in school they put a line underneath the where where they wanted the bottom <laughs> to be you know it's yeah. kind of cool and it's interesting because because these ideas of relativity not necessarily the like heavy scientific thought and like mathematical proofs of it but just the idea that um whatever your viewpoint is defines like kind of where the center is for you or what's moving uh, relative to you is so like is permeated our lives so much that it doesn't seem that crazy but for like these original thinkers it was like completely shifting their worldview to like get to that point because of aristotle because he said that everything was so absolute like to say that things could appear different to different people was like a pretty groundbreaking idea yeah, and I, I think just as a little aside, um, our focus is mainly going to be the science stuff, but just as a little aside in history, I think it's interesting to talk about how this change happened. Um, so before with Aristotle, um, the, these societies were very concentrated in like local cities. So you had like Paris and you had um, some German cities located here and there. You had Italy all the way over there. And then... <laughs> yeah, I mean, all, all the way down, I meant. Um, but then one whole city. Absolutely. <laughs> not, not like some cities in Italy. Not Italy is a city. You, you know what I mean. Um, but then. Is Italy a city? Vote now. Vote now. Comments below. But then there was this major project to clearing the forest in the northern European forests and the constructions of major roads between these cities that sort of communicated all these cities and made traveling between them very safe. And this sort of made um, economy and just market exchange grow. And then the lifestyle of just using money and buying stuff and selling stuff and the market, uh, the merchant class grew. And this whole thing became a reality to these people. And one thing that's important to understand is that money in itself is a relative thing. So if you use money to buy something, um, the money, like you need to understand it as it has a sort of value that can compare two different objects. So like how are you going to compare a house 
to a, I don't know, a shoe. This is a classic example, right? Um, and you use... It is! Classic. That classic house versus shoe. It is! I'm sure you know. It's in Aristotle. Excuse me. <laughs> but anyway, money is just this relative thing that is used to compare stuff. And you can imagine because these markets existed, like right outside the University of Paris was a ginormous market where all the teachers had to go and buy their stuff. Um, and teachers also in that time, like masters in universities, they were also the people in charge of the financial, the financials of the university. They had to keep the budget in and they had to oversee all the financial situations of the university. So it's not too far-fetched to think that these people, these major thinkers of the time, also were very much, you know, inside this world of relative exchange and just money using. Um, so you can start to see how this relativistic, you know, mindset starts to grow in these people. And after a while, major theologians and philosophers start using relativity as part of their um, arguments. And one of the major guys that does this is a guy called um, Nicolas Oresme. I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong. He's a French dude that studied at the University of Paris in the 14th century. And he was like one of the most majorly influential thinkers of the time. He was super smart. Um, he published a lot of like very important papers. And he's credited with being apparently the first person to ever invent um, rectangular coordinates, which just blows my mind because we always think that Descartes did that in the, what, what was it, 1800s or something? I don't know where Descartes lives, but something like that. We'll, we'll fact check it later. Um, <laughs> but it's just crazy to me to think that in the 1300s, this random dude, not random, but this very smart dude um, figured out that you could use lines and just perpendicular lines to just define every motion ever. So for those of you who aren't necessarily familiar with the technical term rectangular coordinates, that's just the coordinate system that you would normally see on like a graph or something. So it's just a fancy way of saying normal coordinates. So I, I think, um, Doug, you brought up a good point that it's not something people really think about too much, but the development of a coordinate system does require a lot of relative thinking that you can measure where something is in reference to two different lines. So you have some sort of reference frame, but the reference frame could change depending on where you put the lines. And I think that's something that's super important in relativistic thinking. Yep. Yeah, and it's the idea that like you can move the origin, right? And like this is probably something you learned in like middle school or algebra <laughs> or something, you know, just so that you can have different like coordinates for like the same object. Yeah, and Oresme was um, known for using relativity in like basically all of his thinking. Um, in one of his papers, I forget the name of the, the essay, but he talks about how the Earth is, could not be stationary and could actually be rotating. And he uses um, relativistic thinking to prove that. He says that if the Earth was rotating, everything that all astronomers have calculated about the motion of the stars and eclipses and all that would stay the same because since we are in the earth it makes sense that we think we're stationary and everything else is moving but if we're moving um that would still make sense it was just that we're moving and the sky is standing still so we think that the sky is moving it was really interesting too because like the very first thought about that was the uh, geocentric worldview, which is that the Earth's in the middle and everything's moving around it. And then whenever the heliocentric worldview came into 
play, which was just that the sun was the thing that was in the center and the earth moved around it. That was a huge controversy and like people were persecuted for publishing things that said that. Um, And that's the one that we're still taught today, but actually... Resume might have the most true form of it, which is that depending on your reference frame, uh, either of those things could be true. You have to change the math a little bit and like put in different numbers. But like as we are here on the earth, it does appear stationary to us. And then if you were like looking from the reference point of or, like from the reference frame of the sun, then that would appear stationary. Yeah. And usually when we do calculations and whenever we're taught it now, we use the reference frame of the sun. And so that's why we say that it's a heliocentric, like, solar system, but it doesn't necessarily have to be so, which is really cool that Oresme could, like, kind of reconcile these two things. Yeah, yeah. I think we use the heliocentric model because it's just more simple math, something Mm -hmm. like that. But yeah, this guy, I I personally really like him. Um, When he published um, these ideas, people just went crazy and they started saying, this is ridiculous, the Earth is not moving, the Earth is not rotating. Because if it was, and this is their argument, if the Earth was rotating, um, you can imagine that the Earth is rotating. They said that the air in the Earth would stand still, and as the Earth rotated, there would be winds, like east to west or west to east winds that we would feel because of the Earth's rotation, and we don't feel that, so the Earth must be standing still. And um, what Oresme said is that the air actually moves with the earth which is another just breakthrough from the aristotelian model of just absolute um motion um before air was conceived as just this thing separate completely separate from the earth that just always moved upwards and orasmi is basically saying that the air is also influenced by the earth just like a ball would be if we just let it go and this is like some major insights into like just (laughs) gravity that this dude, like, obviously he didn't know that he was talking about gravity, but I just think that it's really cool that he can think about this. Like, just think of air as a thing that is also influenced by the Earth's pull. I think that that's very cool. Um, also, he also used relativity, and this is just um, another thing that I think is really cool, to prove that there could be other universes. So in this time, people thought that there could be only one universe because if there were more universes, the absolute notion of up and down would be destroyed. So to them, up was moving outside of the Earth towards the stars. Now, if there was another solar system um, outside our own, and we moved up from the Earth, and we sort of hit the other Earth of the other solar system, then that's not really up, right? Because you're going into another planet, and to them, that's down. And so they said that because of that, um, there could not be multiple universes. And also they said that if there were multiple universes, you would need multiple gods and you couldn't have that. Um, Yeah, and just to clarify, uh, back in the day when they were talking about multiple universes, it wasn't, the term didn't really mean what it means today, but we live in one universe. Yeah. You know, I think by universe, you're talking more about... Solar system. Yeah, like a solar system would be considered its own universe. Yeah. Um, And Oresme said that you could have multiple universes without this break. Um, of multiple gods or whatever if you just have a universe he said inside of the earth and this sounds ridiculous but if you had a universe inside of the earth it would work or if you had a ginormous universe outside of the earth but still centered on us it would still work and people are like that's ridiculous you can't have a universe the size of like a pin or whatever that doesn't make any sense 
And he said that it did make sense because if you shrank the earth and the entire solar system by like a factor of, I don't know, a thousand and just kept everything in proportion, nobody would notice anything, which is, again, just very much relative thinking in this man from the 14th century that I just think is fascinating and really cool. Um, so just to move a little bit quicker in these things, a contemporary from with um, Oresme was a guy named Jean Buridan, again, terrible with these names. Oui. <laughs> and he also used um, relativity a lot. And I just want to mention him because he is one of the first people to um, ever use the thought experiment that is very famous today in explaining relativity, which is if you're moving, and he uses a boat, if you're moving in a boat um, and there's a boat next to you moving with the same speed as you, you would think that that boat is not moving. And if you're moving in a boat, you would think that everything else is moving, but you're standing still. And this is an example that Einstein is going to use a lot in, in his ideas of relativity. So I think that that's also extremely cool, the, these advanced thinkings happening in the, in the 14th century. But moving on from the 14th century, let's talk about more recognizable names other than Nicolai Oresme and Buridan. Let's talk about Galileo. So Galileo is important for our topic because um, he made up the, the concept of Galilean relativity, which is just your basic high school relativity that you're taught in, like, I don't know, algebra or whatever, which just basically says that if you're moving, I don't know, at 15 miles an hour and there's another person that's moving at 20 miles an hour, pretty fast runners. Um, then you would think that the person moving at 20 is actually moving at 5. You sort of do just a difference of the two speeds. Well, it depends on what direction they're moving. Because if yeah. they're moving 20 miles per hour at you, then they look like they're moving 35 miles yeah. per hour. Yeah. So just basically that sort of relativity is what Galileo came up with, which is, is in, incredibly influential because people just, after Galileo, people just thought that that was the way relativity worked all the time. And yeah. later on, Einstein's going to prove them wrong. Yeah, and that model of relativity is kind of something that is proven by Newtonian mechanics. Yes, so. yeah. And basically for things that move with small enough speeds, and like small speeds here, again, is a pretty relative term. Like, <laughs> like very fast speeds count, like if it's like 1% of the speed of light, it still is a small speed, which yep. would be like ridiculously fast. Um, But... This, like, this math works out for small speeds. So in everyday life, like, what you observe around you, this math works out. Like, you would think, oh, yeah, okay, then that guy looks like he's moving about five miles per hour. Like, because he's only moving at 20 and you're moving at 15, so these speeds are, like, the, the like, effects of relativity only are apparent at very, very large speeds. Yep, yep. Um, another cool thing that, that pertains to this subject is that Galileo actually tried to measure the speed of light, um, which is very interesting when I found this out because what can this man not do? Like seriously. Um, <laughs> Why? Did you do that? Well, I'll tell you what he can't do is measure, measure the, the speed, speed of light. light. <laughs> <laughs> he, failed. he failed horribly, but I don't really blame him that much because this man lived in the 1700s. I can't expect him to be able to measure the speed of light with no, any accuracy. I do blame him. You because, blame him? Yes. There's another scientist 
uh, Ole Romer, who was a contemporary of Galileo's, who did measure the speed of light. So well, that's, that's on Galileo. Well, how did he do it is my question. <laughs> so what Galileo was trying to do was he was using, like, other friends, and he and his friends would, like, un like they had covers over lanterns, and they would uncover them. And then whenever one of them saw the other one's light, he would uncover his, and they would time the difference in when each of them saw the other one's light. And they were doing this at a scale of about a mile away. And at that scale, it's they determined that light was either very, very fast or just instantaneous. And everyone kind of just assumed that light was instantaneous because, like, the second Galileo uncovered his lantern, he would see the light from his friend uncovering his lantern. He was like, okay, so it just happened immediately. Um, but old Romer saw that you really would only be able to see the speed of light if it was that fast at astronomical scales. And so he actually used Jupiter and Jupiter's moon Io um, and the eclipses of it. So whenever Io goes behind Jupiter and you can't see it, um, they had like measured that very accurately when that happened and then when you it would reappear and you'd be able to see Io again. Um, and he noticed that at certain times in the year, Io was a little bit late coming out. Um, and so he kind of had this hypothesis that maybe it was because we were farther away and light was traveling and it took longer for it to get there. So he started timing it. Um, and at that point, the uh, diameters of both Earth and Jupiter's orbits were known. Um, and so we could kind of tell the difference between those two planets. Um, and when we were further away, he was seeing that it was later. So he started timing that. And he figured out like a pretty roughly accurate um, uh, estimation for how fast the speed of light was. He was about 30% off, but um, it's not entirely his fault because actually the orbits were slightly off in the diameter they knew. But my favorite part of the story is that nobody really believed him. And everybody was like, yeah, that seems wrong and that's probably not right. We all think light is instantaneous. And he responded by saying like, oh, this certain eclipse that's going to happen on this day, I was going to be 10 minutes late. And then it was. And everybody was like, whoa, what is going on? <laughs> it was so cool. I think that's like the most badass thing you can do as an astrophysicist, you know? <laughs> Prove everyone else wrong. Just predict the future. <laughs> In 20 years, the moon will show up here. He didn't life. even like, no, look at my map. He was like, you just wait for it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah, so... um. You can already see that people, um, even in the semi-Asian times, are already trying to understand what light is and how it behaves. And it's pretty cool that this has been such a long-standing question. And only in the 1900s would Einstein find an answer to how light works. Um, moving on to our to probably the most famous physicist of all time, um, Isaac Newton. Um, I just want to put a disclaimer before we talk about Newton. Newton is just, he's too important. He's too big. Um, so we're not going to talk about everything Newton did because he's, he just did too many things. This man is just insane. Okay. I just, and, I can't. And then he went insane. Yeah. And then he went insane because he took too much. Um, what did, what he took? Mercury? Yeah. I think it's Mercury. Yeah. He's crazy boy. Crazy boy. Um, but we just want to talk about his contributions towards relative motion. And 
basically what Newton did is that he invented all of the classical understanding of how things move. He, he described gravity, he described optics, he described just every type of force-driven motion ever in, in the classical world. He, he's a big deal. But what's really important to our topic today is that he was very careful in making sure that all of his laws and all of his physics had relative frames. So um, I don't know if Newton coined this term, but um, it definitely became popular with him. The idea of an inertial frame of reference, which is where all of Newton's laws um, basically work, is that inertial frame. Now, for people that don't know what an inertial frame is, does anybody want to explain what it is? Yeah, so if we go back to that example of the two boats that we talked about earlier, you may be inclined to try this at home. You and your buddy each have a boat, and you're going to go out <laughs> and, and speed alongside each other at different speeds, and then try and see how fast it is. But you could be like, wait, no, we're both going really fast. I can tell he's going 35 miles per hour, and I'm going 30 miles per hour. There's no way. But that's because the inertial frame that you're looking at is the frame of whatever the lake or the river is that you're boating on. But if you define your inertial frame as the boat's, then the difference between you is like, say, five miles per hour. So the inertial frame is just the frame of reference that you use um, when you're trying to figure out the physics of what you're observing. So the Earth can be an inertial frame, the solar system can be an inertial frame, the galaxy can be an inertial frame, an atom can be an inertial frame. It's just um, a way of determining the positions or the movement of things relative to the other things that you're trying to measure. Yeah. And one of the uh, Newton's most famous pieces of physics that everyone's taught um, is his law that objects in motion tend to stay in motion unless acted upon by an outside force. But that's honestly, if you look at it using a different frame of reference, it becomes something like extremely obvious. So if you're talking about like a ball that's moving at five miles per hour or something from you standing still looking at it. Um, then unless it's acted upon by an outside force, which it almost always is with like friction and stuff as we're looking in the earth, but unless it's acted upon, it'll keep moving at that five miles an hour. But if you look from the reference frame of the ball itself, then it's sitting still. And so then the law just states that unless acted upon, it will continue to sit still, which is something that you can easily observe. And it's like, yes, of course it will continue to sit still unless something makes it move. Yeah. Um, so that's really cool. Like, a cool example of how you can switch how you're looking at something to make laws that seem a little bit counterintuitive seem completely commonplace. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, um, and it's also just like a good explanation of kind of how impressive Newton was in his own right and at his own time for being able to kind of conceptualize that thought when everyone's everyday experience would make you intuitively believe that it's not true mm -hmm. and that things don't just keep moving all the time. Yeah, yeah. Newton, Newton was 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 great. Um, we're definitely gonna have an episode just on him. He's great. Um, so we've been talking a lot about um, relativistic thinking, and I think we understand now that in order to understand physics, you need to have this 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 understanding that things are relative and that everything depends on where you're looking from, right? And this after Newton definitely became like completely ingrained in every physics ever, right? Like if you're talking about motion, you need to specify what what's it relative to. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. Um, so now let's let's 
start to talk a little bit more about people trying to understand light in this concept, trying to understand the motion of light and how light works. So two important people to talk about the understanding of motion of light and just what light is are Michael Faraday and Maxwell. I actually don't know Maxwell's first name. James Clerk. James Clerk. No way. James I don't think I've ever heard that. Oh, uh, cool. Clerk the middle name? Clerk is the middle name, yeah. That's Maxwell. weird. What if he was a clerk? Clerk, James Clerk. Okay. Uh, he get bullied, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> um, so, um, I think everybody knows these two people, or at least know that Far like can recognize Faraday as a thing because you just see it on boxes when you buy like washing machines or whatever. This has how many Faradays? And you're like, what is a Faraday? Well, Faraday comes after this man called Faraday. And he is extremely important in the world of electricity and magnetism. And most importantly, the joining of these two things. So um, Faraday was the first person recorded to theorize that the laws that determined electricity and just everything that electricity does are the same laws that determine magnetism and what magnetism does. Um, he discovered this through experiments. He found out that if you had a current, an electrical current, it would produce sometimes a magnetic field that would alterate um, um, iron pieces and would make the same pattern as a magnet. Um, but the problem is, is that Faraday had no teaching whatsoever in physics and he had no understanding of mathematics. So it was only theory through experiments and he couldn't make that solid into mathematical proofs. So his ideas kind of didn't, you know, make the impact that they should. And then later on, Maxwell comes along and he actually gets Faraday's ideas and puts them in paper into the famous um, Maxwell equations that um, I'm sure everybody that is a physicist ever has to learn in their pain. Um, but the cool thing about Maxwell's equations is that they tell us a lot about what light is. So the, the basic idea is, um, I don't know if anyone else wants to explain electromagnetic waves, but is that when you start having an electric field, it will produce also a magnetic field. And for some reason in the equation, these fields oscillate with each other. When the electric field builds, the magnetic field also builds in the in the direction and then it goes the other way and it just oscillates like that with one field building and the other field also building and it moves like a wave and like not really <laughs> we say that it is a wave but it's really just an oscillation of these two fields the concept of a wave is kind of the in the in physics terms but anyways this was called an electromagnetic wave and it turns out that if you use Maxwell's equations to calculate what speed electromagnetic waves should have, it's the same speed that light has that was discovered through experiments and observations. So Maxwell, with his equations, figured out that light is actually um, an electromagnetic wave, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, and kind of conceptualizing the idea of what light actually is and what an electromagnetic wave is, that didn't come till much later on because you kind of get stuck in quantum mechanics and yeah. particles and waves and what are they and are they the same thing, are they different? Um, but it was a very, very important step, especially towards like Einstein's theories of relativity, 
because like understanding how light moves and like how it moves at the speed that it does was an integral part of Einstein's theories. Yep. So one of the problems um, that came with this discovery is that the speed that they found um, didn't have a reference point at all. So it didn't say that the speed of light was three times 10 to the eight meters per second relative to the ground or relative to whatever. It just said that that was the speed that it had. Yeah, and at the time it was more like they didn't know what it was relative to, and yeah. they were trying to find that out, yeah. which inspired another very important experiment called the Michelson-Morley experiment. This was in the 1800s, uh, and they were. This experiment was based on the fact that there was this theory that light was re the speed of light was relative to the ether, which was like basically space. I guess is what they thought it was. The ether um, was like the conception of like some static frame of reference that you could compare everything else to. And so like, oh, we're all moving within the ether and if like we can find the speed of light relative to the ether, then we can find like everything else is motion relative to the ether and it could kind of make all calculations a little bit easier. So they were like trying to find the speed of light relative to the ether and like what the ether was with Michelson Morley. In yeah, some sense, so it's kind of a return to Aristotle. Like, let's make it everything absolute again. Yeah. Just dumb. Don't do that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and I guess in their quest <laughs> to understand the ether, uh, they theorized that if you had a stationary ether, and at this point the movements in the or of the sun and the earth and the orbits were somewhat better understood, um, so they theorized that that you could not have a situation with a stationary ether where at all points the earth was relatively stationary to the ether and by some physics they <laughs> determined something I truly don't understand which is the ether wind which means that objects that are moving in the ether should experience an ether wind if they're moving in the direction parallel or perpendicular to the ether. So at, at, when you're moving parallel to the ether, you're not going to experience the ether wind, and when you're moving perpendicular to the ether, you'll experience mass, like max ether wind. <laughs> um, and so, it should like slow you down or speed you up, depending seems, if yeah. you're moving with or against. Yeah, kind ether. of, kind of like air resistance, like wind in that sense. Seems um, kind of hand wavy. <laughs> yeah, I think it might have been the definition of hand wavy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but they theorized this very ornate experiment. Oddly enough, very similar to LIGO nowadays, if you've heard of that, where they had an interferometer, uh, which would have essentially two beams of perpendicular light, and depending on, you know, the rotation of the Earth and the situation of the Earth relative to the ether, the two beams of light would either be parallel or perpendicular to the ether, so one of them would be experiencing ether wind and the other would not which would mean that when the beams of light interfered with each other, you would get a different diffraction pattern. Now, light interference and diffraction and all that <laughs> stuff, it's also very complicated. Um, and I think we could go into a whole other episode explaining that yeah. and more detailed with the properties of light. But, you know, long story short, they set up this very elaborate experiment. They ran it many times. They tweaked it and changed it and tried to make it you know, like more isolated and more accurate. And with everything they did, they always got a negative result. 
that, you know, the light beings kind of weren't changing with, uh, like, in respect to the ether. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't and it be funny if they discovered gravitational waves? They're, yeah. They're like, the I ether exists! Yeah. I mean, back in the day, maybe gravitational waves are the ether. <laughs> Who knows, <laughs> man? There's a theory. <laughs> it might be all wrong. No, but so this was later because their experiments kept uh, proving or supporting the idea that there was no ether. That was later what Einstein kind of took from those experiments. But I think their actual conclusion, because they were so set on the idea of an ether, was that like as objects move, they drag the ether along with them for a little bit so what? that they could deny that. Their experiment said there was no ether. It was kind of, it was truly even more hands waving. But uh, what's important to take from it is that they could not find an ether, and today we still do not believe that there is an ether. Um, and Einstein used that fact a lot whenever he was developing the theory of special relativity. So still, light moves at this weird speed with relation to nothing. <laughs> and what what Einstein, the genius of Einstein, is just is is in the obvious. If the equations say that light moves at that speed with relation to nothing, then Einstein is just like, yep, that's what it does. Einstein, the speed is just that, and gen, like special relativity just explodes out of that, and it's really cool. But that is a topic for the next episode, in which we are going to talk about everything about special relativity we're going to talk about einstein's life and how he discovered this incredible theory um so please come in next week and join us in this very interesting topic um i hope you all had a good time my name is doug i'm ben i'm jessica and i'm yasmin see you all next week <laughs>